HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with an extra special guest, Magnus Nilsson, all the way from, I'm going to mispronounce everything, so you're going to have to help me this. <laughs> oh, that's fine. From Favakin, uh, which is just north of Stockholm. Um, Six hours just north of Stockholm. Just north. It, it's, like, <laughs> it's like Canada for us here. Um, you have a wonderful story behind you. Uh, Favakin is, is one of the, you know, top 25 restaurants in the world by Pellegrino. You yourself are you know, a, a young man in chef standards and to come to such a claim from such a part of the world that up until about five years ago, I really believe wasn't explored and understood. Um, what I have in front of me right now is a 700 plus page tome <laughs> called the Nordic Cookbook by Fighting. very thick book. Very thick. It's a workout, but it's a wonderful one. Thank you. And the amount of work and, um, you know, time that you put into traveling around Scandinavia or, or Nordic countries um, must have been mind-blowing for you as a person, too. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Actually, been the best part of producing the book has been to do all these trips and to meet all the people who submitted recipes and, you know, just to experience a, a food culture that I thought I knew a lot about, but as it turned out, I didn't know anything about. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a little <laughs> Swedish boy in the 80s, how far outside of, of Sweden did you actually get? Uh, well, maybe to Norway on vacation, on enforced vacation by my parents, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, so was it culinary vacations? I mean, no. I think of Michelin Guide, and you think of you know France and Italy, and people do yeah. drive for that thing. No, we don't do that. The thing with Nordic food culture that differs it quite a bit from uh, sort of Southern European food countries that it's uh, quite inaccessible, simply because it's mostly carried by people in their homes, not really by restaurants. So if you don't have, you know, someone that you know that can introduce you to it, it's quite difficult to experience as an outsider. 
Yeah. I mean, as a young man, too, uh, it wasn't your first thought to go into cookery school. I mean, you wanted to be a marine biologist. I wanted to be so many things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've already been so many things in your life. Who knows what's next? <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, being a chef wasn't necessarily the profession of a lot of Scandinavians. No. Um, and, and uh, you know, as you said, I didn't, I didn't plan on becoming that from the beginning either. But I always liked cooking and food has always been important in the family as well. So. I mean, is this a true story that you cooked your first meal at three years old? Well, it's not a first-hand recollection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, my mom says that at least. Yeah, chopping cucumbers at your grandmother's house. Mm. I mean, there was innateness around food. I mean, mm. you felt something, some connection no, to definitely, it. Definitely, definitely. This move to France, which is most intriguing to me, uh, not speaking the language, you knocked on the door of Alain Prasard, uh at Arpege, worked there for a blip. <laughs> and uh, then I, I actually started at La Strance. Oh yeah, yeah, with Pascal. Yeah, and then I went to Arpege, and gotcha. then I was fired from Arpege. Yeah, <laughs> and I went back to La Strance again. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, why France? Why not your home country for food? I went there for vacation. Yeah, and I just happened to stay for almost four years. Yeah, and what did you learn from Pascal Barbeau? I think the, the most important thing, except learning uh, a, a new language, which is I think the greatest um, sort of thing with that uh, that period of time. Um, it's perhaps, you know, to understand the difference between exceptionally good produce and just good produce. Yeah. Like to widen your frame of reference. Where it is, it's situated, I think, in Opera in, in Paris. Um, you know, you have the President Wilson Market, uh, great people, um, you know, growers down there. Uh, you have Rungis, uh, yeah. which I know Pascal goes out to and I is one of the few chefs to do so. Yeah. Uh, what were you open up to? What kind of uh, product? I think like the, the, the uh, diversity and all that is, is not uh, greater than in most other big cities. It's just that Pascal, ha- you know, the, the selection he makes uh, of produce to the restaurant, to me, then, that was truly new to just see not, you know, 10% of the pr- product, produce being much better than everything else, but all of the produce being consistently very, very, very high quality. I know one of the farmers, Joel Thibault, I think it's his name, yeah. um, you know, produced this book about vegetables and yeah. about all these chefs contributing recipes. But again, you know, the selection that Pascal had above anybody else, he'd walk to the market and Joel would see him and have a little stockpile of something special yeah, yeah, for him. exactly. When you went back to, you know, Sweden, um, what did you take with you? I mean, did you actually take some produce and be like, this shit is awesome? Well, the problem when I came back to Sweden was that the selection there wasn't, like, the, that selection wasn't available, you know, it, was, it just wasn't there. Um, and that made it very boring to cook. Yeah. I mean, were you disenchanted? Did you not <laughs> oh, want to cook definitely. anymore? No, I stopped cooking. Yeah. For um, how long? Um... More than a year, and I stopped. I, I planned to stop cooking completely, and I started training to become a sommelier instead. Yeah. So, what is it about maybe becoming a wine writer that intrigued you more than being on the stove? I just seemed like a good profession, you know. Yeah. yeah. Drinking wine, writing a little bit, all that stuff. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so, when this opportunity for Favakin, I yeah. mean, it was initially a wine position. It was. Um, who asked you, and and what drew you to that place? A friend of mine who's also a chef, he helped out at Favikin uh, from time to time with the, the family who, uh, who owns it. Um, and he asked me if I couldn't imagine just going up for three months to um, you know, work with a wine cellar a little bit. And, uh, and I thought that was, you know, just having finished my sommelier school, I thought that was a very good opportunity. Yeah. So, I mean, talk to me about Favikin. The best thing I think anyone could do is go to the website because there is this serene picture of snowy landscape <laughs> and this temperature dial that says it's in the low 30s at the moment. 
it's snowy as hell. Uh, there's an amazing first scene in Chef's Table, which you were on, mm. of you just scraping ice off the windshield of your car. I mean... <laughs> Does that you're sitting in the dark corner of our studio? Are you used to that kind of a uh, you know um, landscape? Well, you know, I used to live in a city. I used to live in Paris for, as I said, for almost four years, and I like I like being in the city as well. But there's something special, you know, having grown up in the countryside, like that, to be back and to um, you know be allowed to do the kind of restaurant that Fabian is in a location like that. It's pretty special. Talk to me about Jamland. I mean, how many acres of farmland do you have? Oh. If, uh, Fabiken, I have no idea how many acres. So Fabiken is about 10,000 hectares. Many acres. Yeah, yeah many acres. <laughs> um, and it's not all farmland. It's mostly forest and stuff like that. We have uh, around Fabiken there are 40 hectares of farmland. Yeah. But it's a, you know, uh, as opposed to what most people think, Jemtland is quite a rich agricultural region. In the, um, you know, the, the summers with all that light um, and quite stable temperatures and a lot of humidity, it produces very, very good growing conditions. Yeah, I know. I think the assumption of, of, you know, Scandinavian or Nordic cooking is more about the root cellar than it is about, you know, <laughs> the bounty of produce that's there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the winter months right now. You know, it's starting to darken here. Um, preservation methods are, are, you know, very true to your heart. So how do you, as you say, defeat the seasons by kind of storing those things away and interjecting those into winter? Um, I think many ways of doing that, but I think the interesting thing with, you know, uh, the, the focus on preserving things uh, is that most people don't realize that loads of food that they eat every day are preserved. Um, also here, because like if you buy a carrot in January in New York, uh, it's not going to be fresh from the ground, right? Someone will have picked it for you at the peak of its matur- um, maturity uh, and kept it under suitable conditions you know, to be able to sell it for you later in the season. Uh, everyone eats cheese and olives and ham and stuff like that. They're all different preservation techniques. One of the most fascinating, I think, recipes in this Nordic cookbook is that of the preserved quail eggs. Rolled in <laughs> ash. Tell me about that process and where in Iceland that uh, exists. So it's actually duck eggs. And, and it's um, in the sort of uh, northeastern parts of Iceland. Uh, they do this thing when they harvest wild duck eggs in spring and they put it in big boxes. And these boxes are then filled with the ashes that are scraped out of the bottom of the traditional Icelandic smokehouse. And the ashes come from burning sheep's shit, which is the fuel for those smokehouses. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously it's very alkaline, so it kind of cures the egg. Yeah. You know, when you hear that out of context, people are like, sheep shit, alkaline? What, what does this <laughs> all mean? But, I mean, there's alkalinity in, in pretzels. I mean, lye. Yeah, but uh, imagine a thousand-year-old egg in Asia. Yeah. yeah. It's the same basic idea. And, and obviously these things are you know uh extreme even within the region is very like that's not what i have on my breakfast sandwich yeah um but i thought it was very important to include them in the book regardless because without them like the story is not complete Mm -hmm. you can't take away those things just because they're inaccessible Mm -hmm. Um, and i actually made a little count last week and there are 730 something recipes in the book i think that 50 of them or so no one is going to cook (laughs) <laughs> because they contain something like that, you know, a product that's impossible to obtain. What, or, what do you think are the furthest reaches? What do you think are the recipes that, you know, I want to challenge people to do these. <laughs> I think that that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, and there are, you know, other recipes containing uh, like birds that you can't get, like puffin and stuff like that. Um, but I think the interesting thing with this book, because this is really a snapshot of like everyday food culture in the Nordic region. So the remaining 670 you know, something recipes 
they're actually stuff that people eat on an everyday basis in many homes in the Nordics, mm -hmm. meaning that they're accessible also for people here. And to me, that's very important. I mean, again, you, you mentioned puffins. Uh, there are reindeer, which we don't have much of here. Um, they are very similar. I mean, you, you kind of put them in sections where it's poultry and meat and game. Yeah. I mean, we have poultry, meat and game. So it is a relatable cuisine. Yeah, and you, you, know, you shouldn't focus on those products because there are so few of the recipes in the book that actually contain them. Most of the recipes contain beef and pork and chicken and cod and, you know, <laughs> produce that's available everywhere. But it's so easy when you leaf through a book with, um, you know, uh, information about the culture with which you're not very... Um, uh, knowledgeable already to focus on the extremes uh, and the extremes they might be there more to tell a story and to explain the context than anything else i'm not going to mention ikea because i think that's a lot of people's kind of entryway into scandinavian cooking you know yeah, meatballs no. more broad open face sandwiches which is probably not all that bad but it is what it is it's uh, you know highly industrial yeah. enormous quantity very very cheap and then you get what you get there's a lot of Jewish appetizing in New York. So, I mean, we have gravlocks, we have herring, yeah. and I think it's more related to that Ashkenazi um, you know, sect rather than Scandinavian and you know, share similarities. So it's been here in New York for a long time, that, uh, mm. the quality ingredients to be able to construct these things. Yeah. Being in New York right now, are you going to supermarkets? Are you going to markets and seeing the necessary ingredients to be able to reconstruct some of these recipes? Not this time, because it's a very tight schedule with the whole book coming out. And yeah. all that. But, uh, but the thing is that, like, if you look at most parts of the Northern Hemisphere, at least the West, you know, the Western countries, produce is kind of similar. You know, obviously there are regional dif uh, differences, but what we have to cook from on an everyday basis uh, back home in Sweden is not all that different sort of from what you'll find here. Um, people tend to over-exaggerate the differences a little bit. Yeah, well, we're going to come back and talk about some of those lesser-known recipes, rosehip soup, pork roasted with prunes, juniper beer, and so much more. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Again, with Magnus Nelson and this gimungous book, The Nordic Cookbook, now out by Fiden. Um, I mean, I want to talk about recipes. There are so many. And, 
you know, usually I try to read a book uh, cover to cover before I have a guest in. Um, <laughs> this is one that you kind of have to dwell on and, you know, yeah. pick and choose. But, you know, some of the highlights for me are, are the kind of Christmas time things that are mm. happening in this. And one of my favorite things is Janssen's uh, Temptation. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell me about, you know, how a simple um, potato dish is that much more? So the Janssen Temptation is one of those really classic Swedish dishes. And like when you eat it, it's either as part of a smorgasbord or as a late night snack, you know, having been out uh, or having had a party and then throwing out some Janssen and some Aquavit and a few beers. Yeah. <laughs> like four o'clock in the morning. And basically what it is is that it's um, uh, coarsely grated potatoes, a bit of onion, and then um, uh, cured sprats. And they're cured with sandalwood and salt and sugar. So they're, you know, very savory and quite perfumed. Um, and then you just sort of mix that in a casserole and you add cream and breadcrumbs and you just, you know, cook that in the oven. Yeah. I mean, was it some guy named Janssen that was just tempted by this casserole someday? <laughs> you know, like a pie on a windowsill? It's actually, you know, it's actually, you know, uh, rumor has it that he was a musician, opera singer. And uh, rumor has it that he, um, uh, you know, uh, treated guests to this at his sort of after his late night adventures in Stockholm. Yeah. There's actually several Swedish dish- dishes that, you know, bears his name. Yeah. Um, another wonderful potato dish that's actually found its way, I think, into American culture a lot um, is Hasselbacken or Hasselback yeah. potatoes. Yeah. Um, did you ever grow up eating Hasselback potatoes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's like classic Swedish grandma cooking. Yeah. And <laughs> it's so smart because of how it's fanned out and cooked. Everything's so evenly and crisp and delicious. Yeah, yeah. It was invented on a, on a cooking school in Stockholm called Hasselbacken, like early 20th century. Yeah. Again, you know, you said a lot of these recipes aren't from restaurants, aren't, you know, easily accessible by... None of them are from restaurants. So when you go into somebody's home, what's the first thing you ask of them? Like, cook me your favorite dish or what do you have (laughs) in your pantry? Well, the thing is that if you, like, what has been very fascinating with producing this book is that I often travel to places with um, uh, with the plan to photograph or to document something specific and then I try to leave quite a bit of time unscheduled and it's quite fascinating if you're traveling on your own and you're open to it how much people want to show you about your food culture yeah uh, and you get invited to people's homes to stay there and to cook for you and you know it all comes very naturally if you're curious to do things so going to the Faroe Islands mm. were you in search of a whale hunt and you kind of use that as your way in I was not, because I knew that it was such a rare thing um, <clears throat> to get to sea. And I've been to the Faroe Islands quite a few times, and, and I have actually also seen a whale hunt myself, which was a, a very uh, particular um, experience. Um, but that's something that you can't plan, it just happens. Um, and I've always gone there for you know other reasons to um, perhaps record other more common occurrences, like you know the cured mutton meat and things like that. Well, I think one of those food dares that happen is the fermented, uh, you know, whale fat, that whale blubber or meat. Um, is it really a delicacy in, in that area of the world, or uh, is it... They don't really ferment their whale blubber there. Um, what they do is that either they just salt it, and they eat it much like we eat, uh, you know, like uh, lardo or something like that. Yeah. Or it's boiled. Um, 
So I think, I guess I'm thinking more of, you know, rotten shark. Yeah, that's a different thing. Yeah. That's Iceland. So, <laughs> I mean, like, you know, they're in Iceland, and then you have sour herring, uh, the surströmming, you know, which yeah, is yeah, also yeah. one of those things. Um, well, talk to me about the experience of opening up surströmming, you know, from a can <laughs> the first time. Um, well, I grew up eating surströmming, so yeah. that's not, to me, that's not very particular. But, yeah. uh, but I can still recognize its exceptionally strong flavor or an aroma. And I think that... <clears throat> One thing that's really important when producing a book like this about someone else's food culture or, you know, other people's recipes, because this book is not about my ideas about things, it's about documenting food culture, is to remove yourself and your opinions from um, the recipe content. So there are plenty of recipes in that book that I'm not necessarily familiar to from before. Um, and there are plenty of recipes in that book that I wouldn't necessarily want to cook on an everyday basis either. But they're still important because some people in the Nordic region do uh, cook them every day and they're important for them. What were the most unfamiliar things to me? Or maybe even the hardest things for you to kind of... That, that were the hardest, most pa- least palatable. Uh, I don't know. And it, 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 it hasn't really... I, I think that's kind of besides the point as well. Because, yeah. uh, you know, the book is not about my opinions. Yeah, yeah. Another place that you traveled, uh, the thermal active areas south of, you know, uh, this lake in Iceland where all these rye breads are kind of cooked outdoors. Mm. Um, I mean, th- this is how they bake bread. Is this something that you grew up with or does it feel like a spectacle? Um, no, I didn't grow up like that because we don't have any volcanoes in sweden but uh, the thing with bread is that it's one of the few dishes or i shouldn't say dishes but one of the few sort of food cultural occurrences that um you'll find in the whole nordic region and how it's made and how it's consumed it says quite a lot about where it's produced Uh, and you can look at iceland as an example you know you have these sort of very dense rye breads and um, Iceland is a country without trees, pretty much, so very, very little firewood. And oven-baked loaves of bread weren't popularized there until the introduction of the cast-iron stove. Uh, and they were fired with peat, and they were made mostly to cook on and to uh, heat your home, not really for baking. So they developed this culture of, uh, as you said, using uh, the, the thermally active areas um, for baking. And a lot of villages have like a communal area close to some hot springs with holes dug in the ground. Every family has their own hole. And in the evening, you'll go there with a bucket of rye, uh, rye bread dough, uh, put it in your hole, and then come back in the morning and have a freshly steamed loaf, uh, which is quite fantastic. And then like where I grew up, um, you know, the most common bread would probably be uh, a flatbread, uh, a barley-based flatbread. Uh, if you go to... Um, southern Scandinavia to let's say from Stockholm and southwards and all through Denmark um, people will probably have loaves because that's the only densely populated areas in Scandinavia or in the Nordics so that's really historically where you had bakeries and you know bakeries are essential to have loaves because loaves have to be eaten on you know pretty much the same day that they were baked or at least you know within a couple of days Um, so it really says quite a lot about where you you know if you look at the bread, you can tell a lot about people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that way about fika, too. You know, the the coffee break that happens uh, yeah. in Sweden. Uh, did you see that kind of culture happen throughout uh, the other Nordic countries as well? Well, the thing with food culture, you know, is that um, to all cultural expressions, they happen because they make sense uh, to someone right there and then. And food culture is interesting because not only is it the only cultural expression that everyone has to relate to simply because we all eat. Um, it's also one that's very immediate and it changes very, very quickly. 
And I think that's, you know, uh, how food is consumed and how we eat and how we communicate about food. It says like a lot about uh, who we are and where we are living in the world. I mean, let's talk about the iterations of meatballs. Um, I, I was lucky enough to live here in New York when Nordic Delicacies, this great little deli out in mm-hmm. Bayridge, was open. When I first moved here, they still had Joika, uh, you know, <laughs> reindeer meatballs, like pseudo legally. Um, you know, again, IKEA, the Sweden sour meatballs, Swedish meatballs, and I'm air quoting that. Uh, how many different meatballs have you seen around the Nordic countries, and how how do they differ from one another? Loads, and it's kind of for the same reasons, you know. But people people don't make things. Uh, in the long run, which doesn't make sense to them. And with meatballs, you know, like the technique of grinding meat and then, you know, rolling it into a bowl and frying it or boiling it or otherwise cooking it, uh, that's something you can find all across the world. And how it's made and what it's made from, though, um, is something that really differs from place to place. And uh, you'll see, like, in uh, Denmark, uh, a lot of pig a lot of pig production, for example, a lot of uh, um, pig farms, you'll have a, a pretty good chance of finding meatballs with only pig or with veal in them. Sweden, a lot of dairy production, you know, giving a lot of beef. Uh, most meatballs will be um, a mix of beef and pork where I grew up. There's mm-hmm. a lot of moose hunting, so yeah. the uh, meatballs will be based on moose and pork. Cabbage, also kind of, you know, synonymous with a lot of Scandinavian cuisine, that, that you know, pickle, that slightly sweet and sour. Um, you know, I saw a couple of those Finnish soups, one kind of standard, one creamy, um, I mean, how many different iterations of cabbage did you see? I have no idea. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was kind of a ridiculous chapter. Um, so large and, and so wide, but also similar. I mean, again, you see kind of this base and everything, and it kind of expands out mm. in whatever country it, it's in. Um, one other example of that was pike. Um, which I know more so kind of, you know, like Leonese, Mm -hmm. Leonite, uh, you know, French, um, you know, as a quenelle, and you have it with, you know, some kind of uh, sauce mousseline. Um, How did you see fish expressed throughout all these countries? I know you went to Norway to an amazing fishing village. Yeah, but, you know, it's the same thing there that um, people eat would make sense to them right there and then where they're living. Um, And... You know, in, in, in the Baltic areas of the Nordics, for example, like Sweden and Finland, you'll have one kind of fish culture. And then uh, moving across to the Norwegian coastline, for example, you have completely different species of fish and, um, you know, a completely different climate and therefore also, um, you know, very different way of consuming the fish. I mean, what do you hope to be the biggest export of this book? Uh, what, what idea, what product? Oh, that's also very difficult. But I think that, like, for me, the purpose is basically to... Um, describe food culture as it is today and where it came from and not only supply you know uh, a big collection of recipes but also a context so that people actually understand why they make sense and you know how they became there and and stuff like that how does grouse mushrooms and tasty paste draw from these recipes um so running a restaurant like faviken uh it's always going to be a reflection of and the, the person behind it and naturally for me you know uh, being Swedish growing up in the Nordic region growing up in the countryside uh, having a special interest for these sort of traditional cooking techniques and uh, the everyday food culture of people that's sort of naturally going to reflect into all the cooking value it's not even so much about you know these dishes but the ingredients that are in them mm. you know you have, you have <coughs> blood bread you have moose broth you have 
bog butter, you know, you have lichen, um, spruce scenting the ice cream. Um, if you were to describe the palate of your food, I know you have a multi-course tasting thing. Um, what is it? Is it more towards bitter? Is it more towards herbaceous? I usually don't do that because I think that um, it comes like going to a, a restaurant that's you know very expensive like Fabikinis and for most people also takes a great effort. I think part of what you pay for is to be allowed to describe your own you know food experience. So I never talk about how people are going to possibly perceive what we do because I don't think that's sort of my job. My job is to produce what we do and make people enjoy it rather than telling them how to enjoy it and you know that you're gonna enjoy it well, i feel like people will enjoy it even more if they go to denmark Faroe islands finland greenland iceland norway and sweden so they have that context to be able to walk into favakin and yeah, explore but, but, those but that we supply them with because you can't you can't even hope for everyone to do that yeah. most, most people living in the nordics don't do that either but we will see like for me it's really important for each dish to supply enough of a context so that people can understand why it makes sense and then I leave it up to them to enjoy it and or to not enjoy it if yeah. you know that's what happens. Well, if you can't get yourself to Favakin, which you really should, um, hopefully there's enough context in this wonderful book, The Nordic Cookbook by Fiden. Thank you so much, Magnus, oh, for being you so on much the food for scene. Me. Uh, thanks again for listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and we hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.